This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This week in the news, are one-pilot cockpits a good idea? Frontier drops its customer service line. Pigeons on an aircraft carrier. Real ID is really coming and you'd better be ready. An A-10 pilot gets a flying award. The A-1H Sky Raider joins the Museum of the U.S. Air Force. A Mooney crashes into a transmission tower in America's best airports. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 726 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight. With me is Rob Mark. He's contributing editor to business and commercial aviation, part of the Aviation Week group, and he's publisher at jetwine.com. I hope everybody had a good holiday. It's nice to be back. With us also is David Vanderhoof. He's our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Hello, everyone. First of all, let me say on behalf of Amber and I, thank you for everyone who sent in um, congratulations. We really appreciate it. And and Amber's a bit awestruck at the kindness of our listeners. Um, so with that, but I'm looking forward to tonight. We're, we're done eating turkey and stuff, and we're going to have some serious stories. Maybe um, the way this pre-show started, I'm a little worried. <laughs> yeah, and rightfully so. But to bring some calmness and even discussion gravitas we yeah we have max trescott he's host of aviation news talk podcast of course he's a national cfi of the year and he's an expert on the cirrus aircraft what do you mean of course he's a national cfi of the year (laughs) what am i chopped liver did you did you ever you've been a cfi haven't you rob i i i am a cfi you are a cfi CFI, but 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 I've you never were never the national CFI of the year. Well, Rob, any, any okay. ex- explanation for that? <laughs> no. And and Rob is not chopped liver. Foie gras maybe, but not chopped liver. <laughs> <laughs> I can't and, even say foie gras. Welcome, exactly. welcome to the comic stylings of the Airplane Geeks podcast. And, and I just want to thank all of the listeners uh, who expressed their gratitude toward Amber and David, and I'm still opening all the gifts that you sent, and uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I like them, I'll keep them. If I don't, I'll pass them on to Amber and David. Very good. Wow. Thank you for being my te- royal taste tester. <laughs> all right. Well, look, let's get started with some aviation news from the past week. Everyone ready? Ready from the West. Ready from Delaware and the Midwest. First story, one pilot cockpits question. Here's what QF32 Hero and Sully Sullenberger think. Rob, Qantas Flight 32, that was the uh, A380 flying from Singapore to Sydney that experienced uh, what you'd have to call a massive engine failure. Engine failure, yeah, it exploded, and it did not remain contained in the uh, in the nacelle of the engine. But I, this the story itself is uh, one that doesn't seem to ever want to go away. And people I know in the industry say it's going to happen. It's absolutely going to happen, and uh, 
But of course, the link to the Qantas story was that uh, the Qantas captain had uh, four other senior pilots on board when that engine exploded, and they all, you know, put their minds together in a kind of a mind meld to to solve the problem because they had so many warnings on the ICAST system that they couldn't even figure out what to do next. So the captain, uh, I cannot. I cannot begin to pronounce his name because it's a hyphenated French name. Can anybody else uh, do it? Um, I was kind of hoping you'd give it a shot. Uh, I'm not going to. <laughs> okay. uh, hey, that's I fine. just remember him. as, uh, but, um, it, but he did the thing that all pilots are taught to do. Uh, aviate, navigate, and communicate. Get, get and make sure the airplane is flying before anything else happens. And um, but but of course, again, in essence, the story that we present tonight is that um, the uh, the aircraft manufacturers still want to figure out a way that they can go from two pilots on board to one. Uh, and now, is this to prove the technology, or uh, well, it's just to save money. It really is just to save money because not only will they not need as uh, many pilots, but of course that means that the pilot that wasn't in the right seat of this airplane can be a captain on some other airplane that's flying with a single pilot. And uh, because it's not, it's not a good idea. I mean, I watched from the days when they had four people on board, went down to three for the flight engineer and then to two, and now they want to do one. And it's simply not a good idea. You know, I like the way that the pilot, uh, the captain, described the situation. And just to sort of paint the picture, he described it as the turbine exploding into three pieces that exited the engine at over two and a half times the speed of sound. But the the result, or what happened next, was you know rather dramatic. He said it's like a cluster bomb. Shrapnel hit the fuselage in over 400 locations with 200 impacts on the fuselage. 200 on the wing, even 20 to the top of the eight-story high tail fin. Now listen to this. 650 wires were cut. Half of the networks failed. 21 of the aircraft's 22 systems were degraded. And so what's the uh, situation in the cockpit? Obviously, he says, distracting alarms are sounding continuously. The A380's displays are scrolling endless warnings. And the big red light keeps flashing even after continually being reset. He said, so many things are broken on this aircraft. No engines are operating normally. There is a fuel jettison fault and auto thrust and auto land systems are inoperative. So the way that, you know, that they reacted is like how, how you mentioned it, Rob. He, he called it the hive mind of the pilots. They knew when they had a role to play because in the immediate 30 seconds after this happened, it was the pilot who had to concentrate and focus on what needed to be done next. But then as they progressed through this incredible emergency, he called it a, a hive mind. The pilots knew who needed to do what, when, what the roles were. And as a result, there was, you know, they landed the plane. Even the landing was difficult because of the lack of, you know, systems and all. So you you read this description and you think about okay so if there's one pilot you know in the future at some point 
And it's uh, telemetry. The plane is telemetry linked to the ground, and there's either you know more human beings or AI systems or whatever providing assistance. You really, it's really difficult, I guess, to imagine that that working in a situation like this. All those lives would have been lost, I think, if there had only been one pilot on that plane. Oh, I I don't have any doubt of that because this was not simply a story about an aircraft losing an engine. Uh, The one thing they did mention is I don't believe any of the fragments penetrated um, uh, penetrated the cabin because I don't believe there was a depressurization issue, which we would have probably heard about it if it had. But and and that but but again, I think how bad was it? It took the airplane without a lot. I'm sorry, with the system failures it was experiencing, it took them all twelve thousand, almost thirteen thousand feet of runway uh, back at the airport to get stopped. Uh, I mean, they didn't have auto braking. They didn't have uh, uh, speed brakes. Uh, they, you know, you name it, nothing worked. But they got it down. They got it stopped, and nobody got hurt. That that is an amazing event when you consider that this was the biggest airplane in the world. But still, it it doesn't matter. It could have been a seven thirty seven, and it's not right. It's it's not a good idea. It's unsafe. And it's going to catch up with them one of these days when they try it. Yeah, I think the point of the article is that we have these kinds of emergencies that can't be fully anticipated. No matter how well you uh, instrument the aircraft, there's still going to be things that it really helps to have the human on board. It kind of makes me wonder. Yeah, certainly this is an economic decision to try to get it down to one pilot. But I wonder if there isn't also an economic calculation that says, yeah, every once in a great while, every 15, 20 years, we're going to have one of these disasters we can't cope with. Yeah, the plane will crash. And that's the economic trade-off that we're making. Do you think that's part of the calculus is the acknowledgement that, yeah, these things will occasionally happen, but they'll be so rare we can afford to to deal with that? Oh, I, I, I do. In fact, I, I think a number of people that commented on this story, uh, I can't remember the newspaper that it was in, uh, it was an Australian newspaper. The Sydney Morning Herald. Sydney Morning Herald. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, and they said, well, I wonder what the insurance companies are going to think about this. Um, and uh, I bet you that is the pitch that the uh, aircraft manufacturers have made to the insurance companies. Yeah, it it might very well happen, but um, we're we're going to be able to, you know, how often is this going to happen? Well, I guess that's one uh, way to look at it. But uh, if if uh, you were booking tickets on an airplane and they said, well, this is a decision your airline and your aircraft manufacturer made that basically you might be expendable. How do you feel about that? <laughs> uh, I might want to give that a second thought. Yeah, it sucks to be on that particular flight. You know, this uh, captain we were talking about said something that I've never seen before. I'm guessing he kind of made this up. He said, in an emergency, only about 15% of people will make decisions that help them. 15% of the people will make decisions that hinder their survival. And 70% of the people basically just follow the herd. Now, from a 
piloting standpoint, I, I can't imagine that 70% of pilots are follow, you know, following the herd. Uh, I, I think they're probably you know, fighting to do, their, to do their best. And yeah, there certainly is going to be a certain percentage of the people that are making right decisions and you know, a small percent that are making bad decisions. You know, think, for example, in fact, it was also in Australia where there was a, a twin-engine aircraft which had an engine failure on takeoff and the crew accidentally set to, uh, shut down the good engine. You know, there's a case of people kind of rushing to uh, you know, try and solve a problem in an emergency rather than taking kind of a slow delay deliberate approach to to get the the right answer. Uh, but what do you think, Rob? 15, 15, 70? I, I think he's kind of talking about the general population and not pilots. I think he is too. And uh, uh, I, I have a couple of friends that are flight attendants, but uh, what they did have, what they've always told me is that uh, when there's an emergency, they must yell and scream at passengers to get them to move because they just sit there. Most of them hmm. just sit there because I'm sure they're probably scared to death, but they also don't know what to do. Uh, and so, you know, this is, these are the times that flight attendants and pilots earn their keep. Well, if this were actually to move forward, where would it have to begin? This being single pilot. Uh, commercial aircraft. Where would it have to begin? It, it would be, have to begin with the airframers, who would because you wouldn't just take existing airplanes, would you, uh, as certified and say, okay, now one pilot, not not two. You'd have to start with the airframers. Yeah, I don't think it would. I don't think it would work that way because the the only person in the airplane, uh, uh, you know, essentially in the left seat. Uh, would they be in the left seat? They might be sitting in the middle or something uh, in a one-pilot airplane. But you're going to have to reconfigure the systems to work with one person, just like they did when they moved from uh, getting rid of the flight engineer. Uh, they couldn't just say, well, the FO is going to turn around and, and then work all the uh, dials and levers and switches. No, it had to be completely uh, redesigned in order to um, to make that work. And so, again, that's it, it's probably not going to happen in our lifetime, maybe in the lifetime of uh, some of our younger listeners, our younger and more sensitive listeners who will only remember the sound of my voice. Don't <laughs> fly on one of these airplanes. Okay. I, I, I'm, I, I've had it. Ah, All right. It's time. David. It's time. What's the single most important flight to a pilot? Uh, this one, the one they just took. They're solo. Correct me if I'm wrong. Every pilot is trained to be able to operate an aircraft all by themselves. You're right. However, however, aircraft are not even remotely this complex when they let somebody go by themselves. <laughs> yeah, not even remotely. That's a good point. You know, in terms of where this is going to start, I think about uh, companies like Reliable Robotics, which have designed automation for the Cessna Caravan to fly on its own, you know, from taxi to take off to landing and, and so on. And I think uh, their initial target is most likely 
the uh, you know the package delivery companies, the FedExes and the UPSs. So I think we're going to see it start in smaller aircraft. We're going to see it start in cargo. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure they're they're going to get down to one pilot and then zero pilot. I don't think we'll ever see the zero pilot on passenger flights. But you know, I think a lot of this pioneering is going to happen on the on the low end and then on the cargo side where the the risks are lower. And and we're already, you know, it, it seems to me, Max, uh, Max flight that um, given what we talk about all the time on UAV Digest, um, optionally manned aircraft are rapidly becoming a, a thing, you know, and if you have an optionally manned aircraft, you have a man aboard the aircraft supporting the optional man part. So, I mean, it's it, it, the technology is already sort of there. I know, Rob, you think it's too complex, but we said this you like you said you we used to fly with four people in an airplane in the cockpit and now we fly two so i but i i agree with mr trescott that yeah it'll be cargo delivery you know when where if there's a problem there might not be as great a loss of life than if you were flying passengers it, it's funny i've got a friend that's a captain at fedex and when this first started being rolled around he called and he said what the is wrong with what what's with us we are all expendable i mean uh i said pete remember when you went to fedex because you remember that cargo pilots were happy that they didn't have to put up with complaining boxes well (laughs) maybe this is what goes around comes around i don't know i'm just kidding but other trade-offs and everything so the next story up is the Frontier Airlines drops its customer service line. Yes. Oh, who was surprised at this? I know. This comes from NPR. So uh, I, I know that answer. It's Mr. O'Leary because he didn't <laughs> think of it first. So uh, customers are no longer able to call Frontier Airlines on the telephone and speak with a live agent. Now, it doesn't mean there's no other alternatives, but the alternatives that do exist are that you can – uh, utilize a chat bot on Frontier's website. There's 24-7 live chat and social media channels, including WhatsApp. Well, I think uh, we can all probably understand why a ultra-low-cost carrier would like to uh, drop that expense. The, the airline says this enables us to ensure our customers get the information they need as expeditiously and efficiently as possible. Okay. <laughs> they also say most customers prefer communicating through online channels. And I believe that's probably true, but I'd really be interested in, you know, seeing the data of all the ways Frontier's customers communicate with uh, the airline, with the customer service portion of the airline, you know, how many use which method? I mean, if it's 3% call on the telephone, you know, and uh, the rest are using these other online methods, then, you know, maybe it isn't such a bad thing after all. Well, we don't know how they actually surveyed these people to arrive at these results. Uh, and and that's that's one thing we have to consider, but it is unfortunately the way of the world. I mean, uh, and I had a real example with a, a piece of software on on my uh, 
iMac uh, today and, uh, you know, go to the website, support, you know, what's your problem? Uh, is it okay? It's for a Mac. It's for, okay. It's software. Uh, is it uh, this, you know, a drop down menu? Co- no, it, or something else. It's something else. Okay. Now, detail uh, another drop down menu. Could it be blah, blah, or blah, blah, or blah, blah? No. Uh, could, yeah. You know, I could, if I could just explain to you what I'm, what, what I'm, you know, having problems with, uh, a technician could say, oh, well, you just go do blah, blah, blah. But now I've, of course, got to wait. I had to send in an email to support to uh, uh, say, I'm sorry, none of the options that you gave me on the website cover this, uh, cover this issue. So, again, how do I fix this? Uh, yeah. So, you know, but. I, you know, I just, I wanted to tie this back to the uh, the earlier story. I can just imagine that you know, passengers in the future are on this pilotless aircraft and they're going through the chat bot and the questions are things like, are you experiencing a loss of thrust? Did you hear a large noise before losing the thrust? Could it possibly be an uncontained engine failure? <laughs> I mean, I'm hoping we don't get to that point with our emergency checklist. Well, I just had an, uh, an opportunity. <laughs> I can't believe I used the word opportunity. I had to contact my cable company in order to make a service change. And my cable company actually allows you to do an awful lot of that uh, yourself online, um, you know, very quickly. And, and so I'm kind of going through the here's what I want to do portion of the of the exercise. And it comes down and says, OK, you need to contact. I need to contact customer support. So I had the option of calling or using the chat bot. And I don't know. I I picked the chat bot. As soon as I opened it, I thought, ah, oh, this is going to take forever. Uh, but I thought, well, I'm multitasking. I can be doing other things while the you know chat bot process was operating. And the bottom line is it was very quick, uh, very fast. When they tried to upsell me on some other things, you know, I could just very easily type, no, I'm not interested in that, you know, that, that cut that conversation. But I think people, I don't know, people just, a lot of people would rather interact with a chatbot or, or, you know, a computer screen than, than with a real life human being these days. I think people, people prefer it. So, yeah, Rob, when you say this is the way of the world, I, I think it absolutely is. But again, it, it depends on the problem. Yes, uh, yes, yes. There are some problems that that fall into nice little black and white boxes, but there are times that things do not and and, and as as max said uh, going back to the single pilot on board uh that there, there are many failures that go on in the airline industry all the time uh pressure loss of uh, pressurization engine failures uh, uh other uh, equipment failures i see the stats every morning but those are very easily dealt with even by one person but when you get into a situation that wasn't planned for, uh, that's where it goes up for grabs. And again, is that what the airlines are, airlines and, and Boeing and Airbus are telling us? Is that sorry, man? You know, might just be your your time, and we considered you expendable. <laughs> yeah, time to take the train. Well, Spirit and Allegiant uh, still have call centers that have live representatives that you can speak with. Uh, Breeze Airways 
On the other hand, they the article says that they don't think they have a, a phone numbers that a phone number that customers can call. You have to make any any changes through other methods, either their website or Facebook Messenger. Uh, you know things like things like that. So so Breeze is kind of doing it the same way that we are seeing Frontier do it. But uh, the others, not yet. But yeah, I could see them going that same direction at some point. Well, I think the canary in the cave, the uh, the thing that we always use as the signal as to where these things are headed, is Michael O'Leary and Ryanair. So we need to find out what is Ryanair doing in this. What's his plans? I, I, I think about the United one that says, have we, have we broken a guitar in your, in your luggage yeah. or have we lost your dog? I mean, the United, the United airline checklist will be very interesting. And I was going to say too, this is also a, uh, uh not just ease of, uh, problem solving, but think of the call centers. They don't have to staff or equip any longer. Uh, yeah. Those so, are, that's a big expense. Sure. And, uh, but again, is that going to transfer into lower fares? Uh, I, my guess is that the airlines will say the only reason we can keep them as low as we are is because we got rid of those places or something like that. Yeah. All right. Max T, you were talking about canary in the in the coal mine? <laughs> yes, sir. How about a pigeon on an aircraft carrier? The, oh, there you go. Good connection. What about a pigeon on an aircraft carrier? This is uh, from taskandpurpose.com. Why the U.S. Navy's first aircraft carrier also carried a pigeoneer. Rob, I, I, I don't think I'd ever spoken the word pigeoneer before. I had not either. Of course, maybe David knew about this, but um, did, did you, David? Uh, yeah, I knew about um, aviary services in all of the services. Oh. There was the original airmail delivery was via... Homing pigeon. Well, that that's true. That that is absolutely true. But uh, I I had never heard about them on a on a naval vessel before, and that's why even though the story was run, uh, I think last spring when it popped up again, I thought, wow, that is pretty cool. And I don't know how many of our listeners ever knew uh, that that we had. Uh, pigeons on on naval vessels before yeah uh, and but what i think is interesting and david i don't know if you had a chance to read this story but they were talking about you know the uh it seemed to me like they were saying that this worked uh as long as the vessels were relatively close to shore but i mean say mid-atlantic i mean this never would have worked would it no, do you have to? The, the, you got to give the pigeon a little bit of credit, you know. I mean, they're they're you're not going to do this for transcons, but you, but for ship to shore, it was especially up and down the east coast. Um, it was not a ineffective way of delivering important messages and in a rapid manner. You know, it, the pigeons were. Very effective mode of, and homing pigeons are amazing animals. They have the ability to find their way back home and deliver messages. And up through all the way up through World War II, there were still pigeon um, services, you know, for all of the all of them because they were a great way to provide contact for Marines from ship to shore, for you know, and deliver important messages. 
um, because radio over the horizon radio wasn't all that great. So the aircraft carrier this article is talking about is the USS Langley, the first uh, America's first aircraft carrier, which I think was converted into an aircraft carrier from some other kind of a ship. It was a Kohler. Yes. And it was also the U.S. Navy's first turboelectric powered ship. Uh, but it was launched in 1912. And so this pigeon house was built on the stern uh, of the ship. And they used that for food storage, nesting for the birds, training, uh, and trapping areas. And the interesting part of the story to me is that uh, these particular pigeons on the Langley were trained at the Norfolk Naval Shipyard. And this is while the Langley was, yeah, was undergoing that conversion into an aircraft carrier. And they found that as long as the pigeons were released just a few at a time, uh, it worked out fine. They returned to the ship, to the Langley. But they released the whole flock, and this is while the Langley was anchored uh, at an island in the Chesapeake Bay. And the whole group of pigeons flew south, and they roosted on the cranes of the Norfolk shipyard where they had been trained. And the pigeons never went to sea again. They, they just, um, uh, they just dissolved that idea. The the former pigeon house became the executive officers' quarters. I thought that was pretty amusing. They mutinied. That's they what did. they did. They said enough of this. And, and and let me just say one word as well. Pigeoneer. I just had to say it. I just had to Isn't that say it for the first time as well. Well, I have a question. I mean, besides the fact that we already know that occasionally things got really flocked up. Uh, <laughs> I'm just curious oh if... Oh, he's been writing uh, that all week. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Good, Rob. That was good. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. Wait. Uh, wait. Wait for it. Um, so when they when they uh, gave the pigeons their orders, did they give it to them in pigeon English? <laughs> Most likely. Okay. I'm, okay. Just, I'm just a curious guy. Okay. Yes, yes. We agree on that, Rob. Yes. Next, we have what's almost a public service announcement. But uh, I ran across an article in the Washington Post that I was reading, I think, yesterday. States begin final push for compliance as Real ID deadline nears. So if you don't know, Real ID, this is a U.S. thing. So it's an advanced verification process for state-issued IDs, things like driver's licenses. And this comes about through the Real ID Act that was passed by the U.S. Congress after the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks. Turned out uh, most of the attackers had uh, fake IDs. Now, this law requires that either driver's licenses or state-issued IDs must meet this federal real ID requirements in order to be accepted as identification. Now, here comes the aviation part accepted for identification for boarding commercial flights. In the continental U.S., this is not for international. I think Puerto Rico and some other territories, but not foreign countries, other U.S. territories. And currently, it takes effect the upcoming May, May 3rd, 2023. It's been delayed a bunch of times. Uh, remember, this was passed something like 14 years ago. So if you don't have the real ID symbol, which is like a little star kind of a thing, on your state-issued identification card, you can't board 
a commercial flight unless you have a passport or there are a few other forms of identification. So that all sounds great. But here's the problem. Uh, data, federal data from the American Travel Association shows that in this in, in the past this past May, May 2022, 137 million real IDs had been issued in the United States, which is only 49% of the state issued IDs in circulation. So there's a couple of ways to look at this. The, the sky is falling uh, perspective is that come May 3rd, 2023, potentially a lot of people who are expecting to walk onto their flight will be turned away. It's going to be really interesting to see what that first week looks like, because I know the deadline's been pushed out. I remember the original deadline was in October, kind of at the beginning of the pandemic a couple of years ago. It's, in fact, it was probably October 2019, I believe. Because uh, I went and got my ID, uh, and then a pandemic came along, and they pushed out the uh, the requirement date. It varied by state because in Connecticut, uh, we got ours about ten years ago. I've had one for ten years. Wow! Yeah, and but at least here in California, we had to go down and get it. It's not like they would send it to you. There was some additional identification process we had to bring along either birth certificate or some other forms of identification, and then we would get the license. You know, it was quick and easy to do, but, you know, it's the kind of pain uh, thing that people just don't like to do, and it's easy to forget, and it's easy to put off. But, man, I think people are going to be screaming bloody murder if they have to get to a business meeting and they get stopped at the airport. And I just kind of wonder, yeah, how much is uh, TSA willing to take heat over being the bad guys for, you know, finally saying, all right, here's the date, and we're actually going to tell businessmen you can't fly today. It just seems to me that there's going to be some initial grace period or there's going to be something to kind of soften the blow. I just can't imagine it's going to be a hard, fast sand you know, line in the sand. Well, they will, of course, be able to use a passport. Right. Uh, if you have a— If you a, have one. If but nobody carries a passport with them in this country. You know, it's a funny thing. I guess maybe because I'm 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 a pilot too, but I've always carried my passport whenever I flew on the airlines. It's always in a extra pocket in my bag, just because I got used to carrying it. And beside, when you go through the TSA thing, it looks real cool when you go. Oh, here's my passport. You know, but, but you look cool anyway. What do you need that for? Well, that is, that is true, uh, but you know. <laughs> I think myself, I'd take a hard line on this because it's not like people didn't know. And the states that dragged their feet and resisted and just delayed and delayed and delayed, well, that's your own problem is the way I look at it. I mean, if you, know, if you had taken this as seriously as the U.S. Congress did, you wouldn't have messed around with it and you would have, you would have done it from the start. People have had plenty of advance notice and states, the states have to implement this. Um, they've all agreed to implement this, by the way, you know, and, and they've dragged their feet. So I don't know. I, I vote for put the hammer down. If you haven't got it, turn around, go back to the car park, try again tomorrow. 
Yeah, you say the states have to implement it, but it's also something where people have to take personal action themselves. You know, the states have already put the processes in place. Now that people need to go do it. <laughs> so I think that's that's the weak link in the chain there is getting John Q. Public to go out there and visit DMV, which is not exactly on the top 10 favorite list of activities for anybody to in do. In any state. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But exactly. again, I mean, we've had years and years to do this. So I, I just don't buy any of the excuses, but that's just my personal Well, opinion. but just keep in mind that, uh, I mean, just I'm just use, using Illinois as an example. Um, the first time that I heard about the, we've got to get these real IDs, was two years ago. I mean, now, maybe Congress passed this uh, shortly after 9-11, but for 15 years, at least we in Illinois didn't hear much of anything about it. Now, maybe the legislators did, and they chose to say, ah, we'll get to it. But but the citizens didn't really, uh, you know, get into this whole thing. But I agree. I Just get the damn ID. Yeah, just do it. I, I, know, I know Pennsylvania, the first time I got the opportunity to get it, I had to pay extra and bring extra documentation. That's right. And there's nothing that says you have to have it. I mean, I, Rob, I'm like you. I I always, even if I'm flying domestic or whatever, I always carry my passport just because, you know, there's there's no arguing with a U.S. passport, you know. And I, after I paid extra to get the real ID, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, why did I even need to bother doing this? I had to take a passport to the driver's license place to get an ID that, isn't going to supplement my passport, you know? So it's just, I, 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 yeah, it's sort of, I think this is another one of those, it's theater, you know? And I know in Pennsylvania, it was a big deal that they didn't want to change the licenses and didn't want to update the codes and all of the other stuff. Um, when I got my Delaware license, it was pretty much a, their license were, were compliant. So there wasn't any extra or anything like that. It was just done. But it's like, okay, I don't know why I needed to do this when I have a U.S. passport. So TSA, to give them credit, was very clever if you think about the uh, the dates, the deadline dates. First was October. The second one was very early May. They're off season. You know, they, they didn't do it in the middle of summer when the traffic uh, you know peaks. They didn't do it on Thanksgiving weekend. They've done it very much in the off season. And I still kind of wonder if maybe that gives them some wiggle room to you know say, all right, here's your three-week grace period or something like that. All right. Well, we can move on. If you have uh, some uh, some thoughts on this, uh, write to us. Let us know what you think. The geeks at airplanegeeks.com. Um, so we've uh, sort of outlined our positions. Another aspect of this before we move on is that I, I would be willing to, you know, to believe that probably most business travelers, most frequent travelers, they've already heard about this and have already done something. So the, the you know, the population that has not stepped up to this uh, maybe they're not the flying public, I don't know, or at least a significant portion of them. I guess we'll find out. I just hope it doesn't get pushed out again. That's all. <laughs> well, and I bet the airlines, when you, when you go to print your boarding pass for a flight on May 3rd, there's probably going to be something there that says, oh, by the way. You know, that's probably that, that one last chance to let people know. Yeah, the airlines should probably do some awareness on this topic. All right, from the Air Force Times, moving on to something completely different. 
An A-10C pilot earns top flying award for combat successes in Afghanistan. And this is about Major Kyle Atkinson, uh, who was uh, presented with a distinguished flying cross for his combat achievements in Afghanistan. Uh, The major is a test pilot with the 59th Test and Evaluation Squadron. David, do you know what the Test and Evaluation Squadron is? What do they do? They test and evaluate, right? Pretty much self-explanatory. <laughs> what, what do they test? What do they test? Where do they? Where do they test? And how do they test? Most likely, it'll be out at Nellis, which is where, um, or Edwards would be the other test. And test and evaluation squadrons all have different missions, and they they support different aircraft. But basically, if you're upgrading new software. Um, you're you're teaching that A10 to be able to fly itself with only one pilot. Um, <laughs> they do those kind of implementing or evaluating new tactics and um, for implementation of the aircraft or new weapons. So, test and evaluation squadrons are all throughout the Air Force for all the various aircraft. Um, so, in in this case, um, and nine times out of ten. Like um, this pilot, uh, uh, Major Atkinson, um, our test and evaluation squadrons are advanced pilots or pilots with lots and lots of hours in specific aircraft. Uh, They're test pilots. So you want the you want the experience brought in from the field to be able to implement new programs and new technology. So it's not surprising that. A pilot getting a DFC or a Distinguished Flying Cross would be in a test and evaluation squadron after his forward deployments to bring back that knowledge to be able to disseminate back to the fighting forces. Hmm. All right. Makes sense. I mean, after uh, after the manufacturer makes some changes, the Air Force has to test those changes, evaluate those changes, I guess. Um, so there's a whole organization that does just that. We also see another military item. Uh, the A-1H Sky Raider is now on display at the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force. It's in the museum's Southwest Asia War Gallery. Uh, speaking of A-10s, uh, th- this is a radial engine aircraft that, uh, David, you could kind of say, I guess this preceded the A-10 as an attack aircraft? Well, let's just say the A-10 was designed to replace the A-1. The A-1 is a post-World War II um, naval aircraft that started out for the Navy, replaced, um, was a Douglas product, replaced the um, TBF and the SBD and became one of the very first attack aircraft. And the Sky Raider had a long life. The Air Force started flying them um, in the middle of the Southeast Asia conflict, because of its rugged ability and because its ability to fly slowly and support um, the helicopters that were rescuing the Jolly Green Giants um, and to provide ground support for the troops. Um, They were low, they were slow, they could carry lots and lots and lots of ordnance. And to this day, the Air Force is still trying to figure out a way to have a non-A-10, but an A-1 kind of product um, that you can fly, take lots of hits, 
carry lots of stuff. And over the years, the Sky Raider flew everything from um, attack missions to airborne early warning, was in multiple services, and it was an amazing aircraft. But it was mostly known as the SPAD, um, which was a sort of a contrary title for an aircraft because it was slow and slow like the spat of World War I fame or or basically it used the call sign Sandy, which was the aircraft used to protect the um, ground forces and for recovery of downed airmen in Vietnam. Um, if you ever want to see great A1 footage, I recommend you watch Flight of the Intruder. At the end of the movie, I won't spoil it, but there are some A ten A A ones, excuse me, that come in and save the day, and it is phenomenal footage. And if you haven't seen an A one in person, they're big. Um, in fact, uh, some of the Navy versions had an interior um, compartment, radio compartment for two crew, and some of the four seaters could carry stretchers, etc. So. A very, very famous, very, very successful uh, Douglas product that served and then eventually led to um, its replacement, which was the A-10. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, just from the photographs I've seen, I didn't imagine it as being a large aircraft. Uh, so that's that's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's the same uh, thought that I had when I saw one at the Air Force Museum. Uh, my cousin used to fly one in Vietnam, and I mean, he talked about what it was like, but, he, he, you know, you don't talk about how big is it? It's really big. Well, that doesn't mean anything. Uh, but when I saw it in the museum, I went, this is a big-ass airplane. I mean, I don't I don't know, David, maybe you do. What did a Sky Raider weigh at max? Do you know? I mean, I know that's a pilot-y kind of question, but. Yeah, well, no, I Max. Wait, I don't know, but um, there's this thing called Google. <laughs> Google. Okay, I'll I'll do it. I I ask the question. I will Google it, and then come back with an answer in in a few seconds. Uh, Meantime, we've got a story that's all over the news. Uh, this is after a single engine Mooney M20J crashed into a transmission tower and got hung up there. It took them, uh, well, there were two, uh, there was a pilot and a passenger in the plane. It took them almost seven hours to get them out of there. We'll talk about that in a second. But uh, Micah sent us some, well, some thoughts on this whole topic, which which had me kind of rolling on the floor. This is when he said he was shocked at the uh Story. Well, he said it, he said it's truly an electrifying story. In fact, some people might find it shocking. The, the whole incident took place close to D.C., <laughs> Micah says. Uh, he said the story was from last night as this is being recorded, which is true. And he's not sure of the current situation. <laughs> Missed that one. Yeah. That's so good. that was pretty that was pretty good. So, yeah, two uh, two aboard the pilot, 65 passenger, 66 flying from Westchester County Airport. Uh, that's in White Plains, New York. And they were uh, headed for uh, Montgomery County Airport, or Air Park, rather, Montgomery County Air Park. As I uh, mentioned, it almost took it took them almost seven hours to, to get them out of the plane. Uh, from the timeline that's reported in uh, at least the uh, 
DC News Now article, uh, the the rescue plan came together almost four hours after the the plane stuffed itself in this transmission tower. Well, I guess they struck wires first and they uh, broke the fall somewhat, but then it 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 basically got lodged into the uh, into the tower. And when they, I saw pictures of it when they got it down, and the it was crumpled back to the uh, to the firewall. So, uh, you, I, I watched the weather, and I looked at a few other things on this, and the weather was really bad. I mean, it was two hundred and I think it was two hundred and one, a two hundred foot ceiling and a mile visibility in uh, drizzle and fog. Um, and and the guy was apparently on an IFR approach, uh, and he the place that he came down was about a mile short of the runway, a mile and a quarter perhaps. So did did the engine quit on him? Uh, did the engine quit because they ran out of gas? Uh, did the pilot misread the altimeter? Did some other piece of technology fail? We don't know, but we do know the airplane came in way short of the runway. And these were two lucky people because the the uh, news story that I saw when they were trying to shoot uh, video of the airplane, which was, I guess it must have been maybe, I don't know how tall are those towers, maybe 60, 70, 80 feet in the air. And and the fog was so bad, you could, you could see it was already uh, difficult to see the outline of the airplane because the fog was so deep. And uh, so even if he had stayed on course, uh, the chances of him having made it down at Montgomery Park were the, let me look at the minimums again. I think it's a mile uh, on the Viz. Uh, yeah, it's a mile on the Viz and um, uh, would have been pretty, pretty slim. Uh, but there was a radio call from uh, Potomac Approach that runs the uh, approach control into there. Uh just before the airplane dropped off a radar, they said, you know, I think it was one Bravo Fox or something, you know, one Bravo Fox, low altitude alert, check your altimeter, which is controller's way of saying, holy crap, do you realize how low you are out there? Get it together. But of course, I don't believe the pilot ever responded to that. And he may not have because he didn't have time. Uh, so again, we just, we just don't know. Uh, and we'll have to see. Because the the pilot lived, so he's going to be able to tell us pretty soon exactly what happened, and then we'll we'll figure it out, I guess. Yeah, they they both got taken to the hospital. Uh, I, I think they've been released. I think I heard. I saw a story that said one was released today, so ah, at least okay. one of them got. And of course, it said they suffered from high uh, hyperthermia, and I hadn't even thought about that. Uh, but yeah, if you're hanging upside down uh, in the middle of the winter in a metal airplane, yeah, it's going to get darn cold inside there. Uh, I also, read I don't, that- I don't think the airplane was upside down. The way it looked to me, it it was right side up, but it was. They were up there with no heat for, would they say five hours? Seven, seven hours is what seven I read. Hour, yeah. Um, and the authorities were talking with them by cell phone every 30 minutes because they didn't want them to run out of battery power. I, I can just imagine the conversation going on between the husband and wife. All I can say is, uh, how long do you think it's going to be before the spouse flies with this pilot again? Yeah. <laughs> well, it depends on what happened. Of course, 
Uh, let me see. White it things. might not depend on what. <laughs> That's true. Might, might be done. Uh, yeah, and it shouldn't have been a fuel problem if they were properly pre-flighted because the distance from White Plains to uh, uh, Montgomery uh, near Washington, it's not that far. It, it just isn't. So, uh, But let's give the pilot the benefit of the doubt until we know a little more. So the extraction took a long time because they had to figure out how they were going to do this. And what they ended up doing is obviously shutting off the power. I think that was probably the first thing they did. But then they sent some workers up in the tower to uh, verify that the power was, in fact, um, off. And I think they attached some some grounding cables so that uh, static electricity discharges wouldn't wouldn't be an issue. But they did all that, and then they uh, next needed to secure the plane to the tower, right? You don't want to try to get them out of there, and the and the plane falls free. So they uh, they had to do all that, and then finally they ended up using some uh, very tall cherry pickers uh, to uh, to to go up there and and get the two of them out of the airplane. And then once they were down, they they got the airplane out of the out of the structure and then they've been uh, uh working on the repairs necessary to restore power because uh, over ah, over a i forget the number over a hundred thousand without power while this was uh going on and the article also says that at one point more than a hundred fire and rescue workers were at the site so uh this was a big, I don't know who pays for all this, but this is, this is a big deal if you get yourself stuck in the power line transmission tower and have to be extricated like this. Well, the funny thing is it's not the first time that this has happened. Uh, Rob and I were talking about this earlier today, and we both recalled the same story, uh, which was that a Cessna 150 got hung up in wires at Boeing Field in Washington State back in 1999. And that plane did hang upside down for a number of hours until they got that uh, pilot out. I went to go find the story because I remembered it. And while looking for it, I, I found a very odd fact. It turned out that that particular pilot died in a plane crash about two and a half years later. And what was odd about it was that he was flying with a pilot who had basically uh, flown a military aircraft out of some country, you know, to, to basically steal it and go to another another country. And the, the two of them were out flying together when they crashed. And I just thought, wow, you know, <laughs> this pilot, uh, it, it's probably not just coincidence that he ended up in, you know, two risky kinds of situations. There was also a story regarding the pilot who we were talking about in uh, Maryland, and apparently he had a plane crash uh, 30 years ago, or at least uh, this data shows that a pilot with that name who would have been of the same age was in a, another crash 30 years ago. Hmm. Interesting. Well, the one thing that they also didn't mention, although it was a time delay issue, uh, was that um, uh, the uh, the you know they waited for the power to get shut off and they had to verify that that was uh, indeed the case. And uh, one thing that, that made it difficult was that the only way they could be sure the power was off was that the guys up in the cherry picker, one of them had a touch and they went, no, no, you touch it. I'm not going to do it. You do it. Uh, okay. I, I, I made that up. I'm, I'm sorry. That was, yeah. that was not kind. All right. One more item. Um, this is how uh, SFO ended up ranked as America's best airport. 
I haven't been to SFO in you know, many, many years. Uh, Max, how's it looking over there? You know, it really is pristine. You know, when you walk through that airport, it's just amazing how much money they've spent. You know, the, the international terminal, I think they spent a billion dollars or maybe 900 million, somewhere in that ballpark, uh, redoing of that. And that's just one of uh, many terminals uh, over there. Anyway, the uh, Wall Street Journal looked at the nation's 50 largest airports and ranked them on a number of different uh, categories. Uh, 19 different factors ranging from airlines on time performance to average ticket prices, security line waiting time, cost airport concessions, and results of the J.D. Powers annual survey of passenger satisfaction. And they said that uh, San Francisco uh, International came up first. And they mentioned a few things here. They said passengers can retreat to yoga rooms, a museum, art exhibits, and outposts of local restaurants, uh, new touchless water filling stations for uh, water bottles and things like that. Um, I'm kind of wondering if part of it is that uh, when they talked about uh, you know, one factor was uh, delays. You know, the, we've we're, we've been in a drought here for the last couple of years, and we just don't get much rain, and so we get far fewer delays at San Francisco. And San Francisco used to be renowned for delays because it's got a pair of runways that are too close together to do simultaneous uh, approaches. So they've had to do staggered approaches when the weather gets poor. Well, we haven't had much bad weather here for quite some time. So I'm guessing that probably helped out in the, the rankings. But I will say I have never had much of a delay at all going through uh, security at San Francisco. Uh, they do a really good job of uh, keeping the TSA well-staffed and keeping the, uh, the line short. So, yeah, it's a fairly pleasant airport to, to go through. And the, the Wall Street Journal uh, did these rankings in, in a couple of different categories. So the uh, the SFO um, category, the category it was in, it was the 20 busiest airports. And that's busy based on passenger numbers. But um, as they were first, Atlanta was second, then Minneapolis, St. Paul, Detroit, Phoenix, and Los Angeles International. But uh, yeah, California airports did did pretty well. Uh, there was another category, um, 30 mid-sized facilities in Sacramento. Sacramento International was uh, uh, ranked at the top. Um, San Diego was in second and uh, uh, San Jose third. So uh, hmm. yeah, California airports did pretty well. Yeah, San Jose is my other go-to airport. I'm Roughly halfway between the two, actually a little closer to uh, San Jose. So I try and go to San Jose uh, when I can. And yeah, they've also got a relatively uh, new terminal and things are, are fairly pristine uh, down there as well. So yeah, it's 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 nice to have, uh, you know, great, great airports and great facilities. You know, sometimes you fly into airports and you kind of go, oh, this is kind of old and kind of tired. And you know, I, I can think of one or two of those, which I won't name. Um, but yeah, you know. Well. Some airports get uh, long in the tooth. But when I saw this story, and I the first thing I saw and remembered was the the option for yoga, and I said, "Is this is this California? Come on! <laughs> I mean, come on! We we know this is a California airport." Yeah, I always get to the airport early so I can hang out there in the yoga room for a few hours. You know, uh -huh. no, I'm <laughs> but actually, we've we've talked about San Francisco before as having the uh, the the pet 
program where they have uh, a pig and a big rabbit and various other animals, uh, kind of the therapy animals to help uh, keep people oh, be, uh, right. less stressed as they're walking around the airport. I have not seen any of these uh, animals when I'm there, but I think that's a pretty cool That's idea. right. I remember was having the discussion about the giant rabbit. So uh, maybe the, you know, the East Coasters, we don't want them to feel left out. So some of the East Coast airports also uh, got notable notable mentions in this in this ranking uh, at least amongst the uh, 20 busiest airports at the bottom at the other end of the scale were uh, Newark uh, Liberty and JFK i guess those guys need to uh, step up their games you you know what the slogan is at chicago midway what? where i used to fly for years yeah. uh we ain't got near as many rats as we used to. <laughs> so. Oh, man. I, Newark used to be my home airport when I lived in New Jersey years ago. And I, I flew in there in August for the first time in many years. And just the difficulty of getting fast food quickly really surprised me. You know, I spent probably 30 minutes trying to get fast food there. <laughs> They've got a, you know, a setup where you know the traditional restaurants don't seem to be there. Instead, there's some concessionaire who gets you to uh, sit at a table, order through your, your little iPad, and then you wait and you wait and you wait till the food shows up. And it was just, oh man, give me, give me the old traditional <laughs> setup to me that just works better. What's up with the geeks? Let's see. We have a couple of things to uh, talk about, I think. Rob, what have you got for us this time? Uh, I started working on a story that uh, uh, AOPA pilot is going to run that I I, I kind of coaxed them into because I, I didn't think they did as much history uh, of uh, certain aspects of aviation as I would have liked to have seen. Anyway, I pitched the editor and she liked it. And it's about uh, the days, uh, the early days of ILS and and how many people may not even remember that there was something called uh, precision approach radar uh, and uh, area surveillance radar, PARs and ASR approaches uh, that uh, uh, could could be used by pilots for training, but also to get them down uh, in one piece when their equipment failed. And uh, when I was in the Air Force, I spent a lot of time in uh, a precision radar. Uh, unit and we called it GCA for ground controlled approach and uh, so they they kind of uh, thought it was a cool idea and I'm having fun digging up uh, stories about it and people and photos and um, it it kind of brought back a a few memories considering it was uh, how many years uh, well a bunch of years back uh, but again in those days uh, we talked them down uh, you know. T- Turn left two degrees. Turn turn right three degrees uh, on on glide slope uh, on on uh, uh, localizer. Uh, oh, you're drifting left of course. Turn back right. Uh, and it was like having an ILS, but it was sort of a a manual ILS because the pilots still had to do all the flying. Hey, talk a little bit about the equipment that you used on on your end, and you know calibration and all the various things you had to go through. You know, it's really funny. Calibration. I had, I didn't even think of that. You brought up a good point I'm going to mention, Max, because in these uh, uh, GC8, we were in a trailer uh, that was uh, uh, 
maybe uh, nah, maybe 50 yards to one side of the runway. And uh, it was full of old cathode ray tube uh, screens and things like that. And, and it was all uh, very imprecise because it was tube driven. And so when those suckers would warm up, we always had them going. We always had one PAR uh, operation going. But uh, the way you aligned them in the morning, just to make sure, you know, when you took over your shift, you always, somebody went out and aligned the precision radars to make sure that you were aiming people where the end of the runway really was. And we could see markers out on the end of the runway to, to tell us. But uh, you it, because it's dark, realize that when you walked into the unit, uh, there were no lights in there. The only lights were from the uh, radar scopes. So it was essentially pitch black. And uh, you're you're looking down on the scope at maybe, you know, sit, imagine sitting at a table. So it's kind of in front of you. But all the controls were underneath, uh, down kind of below your knees. And so the way they taught us to, uh, to, to align it was to take our hands, your left hand and your right hand, and uh, put them at the bottom of the... Uh, the rack where you could feel the the, the lever or the, the handles that they could pull the unit out of the wall with and and then go up just a few inches till you touch the far right and left uh rheostats, the turning controls, and then you would work that way. You did that one, and then you moved to uh one that was further two more uh rheostats that were further in, and then two more further in. And when you got to the middle two, you went up a row and then you went out that way and 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 that's the way you you learn to do it but we were really good we could we got a line of radar in 30 seconds uh because you just got used to it and they trained us that way in school uh but that was kind of my first uh, real aviation job uh you know it, it was in the air force but i loved it i thought this is so cool cuz i was like max uh uh, I, you know, he he did get to be a ham radio operator. I never got past novice, but but I loved playing with all that stuff. And so this was really cool. And I was around airplanes and uh, Century Series fighters, and wow! So they said, yeah, 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 tell us that story too. And I went, yeah, yeah, okay. How how much room you got? About twelve hundred words. And I went, that's it. I've only got, oh boy. So I've got to figure out a way to crunch it all down to make it interesting and and say it in few words. But a lot of fun already so far. Rob, something I've been uh, wanting to ask you. I, I know uh, in the past I've uh, seen you uh, be very interested in um, aviation uh, journalism, aviation journalists. You know, new people coming in and and getting into uh, into this into this field have. You seen any trends, or are are we seeing? I and mean, we've talked about you know young folks getting interested in flying and becoming pilots and all. Uh, but it, as far as uh, you know, younger folks getting interested in aviation journalism, are, are you seeing that that happening, or is the pipeline kind of drying out? Well, of course, I did start that web, that Facebook page uh, two or three years ago. Twenty uh, first century aviation journalists. And uh, we had a lot of people sign up. We get occasionally uh, maybe a dozen every year. I think there are probably 250 people on it. But it's it's kind of died down in terms of uh, uh, the people using it because uh, 
you know, it's it's like any other Facebook page. If somebody's not posting something, nobody looks, and it doesn't get spread out amongst the group. Um, and I don't want to toot my own horn all the time, and I keep asking people to to tell us a little bit about what you're doing. Uh, uh, what are you interested in? What have you written? What have you? And people are like, eh. <laughs> so I I can't honestly say I know whether there are. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of people coming in. I know uh, business commercial aviation hired a guy out on the West Coast about six months ago, and I don't, I don't believe he is a pilot. I don't know what his uh, aviation experience is uh, precisely, but he he writes some really great stories, uh, and and I think the the most important part is that uh, you've got to be a good reporter. You've got to be curious. You've got to uh, you've got to search out good sources uh, for your stories, uh, people that can can tell you interesting aspects of a topic that other people might not. And and you have to know when to say, uh, OK, well, I think that I think I've got it all. Thanks very much. And they just keep talking and talking. I really have to go. Thank you very much. You know, but uh, and then decipher where, where the good quotes are and. Uh, uh, but that that's the part I like about it. And I think a good journalism school is still going to turn out uh, a good journalist. And uh, but again, you know, how many of them are interested in aviation? I I do not know because we're we're still losing publications. Uh, so there's not as many outlets for people to write as there used to be. Uh, uh, the opportunities uh, to to enter that uh, career are not particularly encouraging right now. Yeah, these things go in cycles. Everything goes in cycles, I guess, but uh, you know, maybe that will maybe that will change or, you know, n- new media types will, you know, attract other people into it. Ah, who knows. They probably all want to be podcasters or some jackass yeah, thing like yeah. that. Yeah, well, they want to get rich, you know. In, well, you like, mean like us? In two years, they want. Yeah, they want to quit their jobs. We and... are the creme de la creme, are we not? <laughs> I think we've been skimmed off. But oh, God. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Uh, so anyway, okay. yeah. So just a couple items. Um, one on guests. You may be wondering where where the heck are the guests on airplane geeks? And we kind of. Speaking of uh, pipelines, we, we kind of dried up as uh, I was on my multi-month adventure camping around the country. But uh, we have guests lined up actually for the next three episodes, and uh, you can look forward to those. And we are pounding away to, to fill the January slots with with guests as well. Um, can I interrupt with one question? You mentioned your multi-month trip around the nation um and while i'm not asking for all the details was it was it worth it to you i mean would you encourage someone that has the time to do that yes for for several reasons one is there are a lot of incredible things to see in the united states there are so many beautiful places uh just spectacular things to see uh that's one item another is that if you spend your entire life in one region of of the country, uh, you miss out on a lot of things. Uh, you, you miss out on the different, different geography. You miss out on different history. And maybe most importantly, 
you you don't completely understand the variety of different viewpoints and lifestyles that people in this country have. And that, I, I can get kind of philosophical, that may be part of this a problem with the you know, divisions in this country is that people are, you know, viewing everything from the perspective of their own experiences. And when you get out in the country and, you know, across the country and meet people who live completely different lives than, than you live, you really learn a lot. And it really makes you wonder that maybe we shouldn't be a, a little bit more accommodating when it comes time to try to understand other people's perspectives. So, so that, that was one of the, one of the big things that, that I really picked up on. So yeah, if, if you're able to get out, most people don't have two months they can spend traipsing across the country, but um, it's if because you they're that, not wealthy, successful podcasters, th- that's right. That's right. Just raking in. So uh, my recommendation would be think of a place that you can go that you could, you know, get there in the amount of time that you have to spend and pick one that is as much different from where you live as possible. That's what I would recommend people go see. Try to go someplace as different as you can find and have time for and, and can afford. And, and that works internationally too. Yes, that's true. There are the language barriers, but they can be overcome unless you're in France where they will not talk to you if you're not trying to speak French. No, I'm just kidding. Well, no, it's pretty close, but yeah. Yeah. So yeah, when I was working for Pratt and Whitney and when I was in a, a portion of my career where I was traveling internationally a lot, visiting airlines, visiting, uh, overhaul shops, overhaul and repair shops, uh, and got the opportunity to see completely different cultures, that, that's a real eye-opener. You know, we, we, we think that, you know, we're the best in the world, and in many ways we are, but every place in the world is different, and we need to, you know, recognize and understand that. So anyway, that's, um, that's, that's my pitch. <laughs> oh, boy, it took a long time. Um, Oh, the other thing is, so last episode, we were talking about Mastodon. I think Rob or somebody brought that up. So I figured I'd try it out, and I'm on Mastodon now. If you haven't uh, been uh, familiar with it, uh, basically, it's it's kind of like a, uh, a different type of Twitter kind of a thing. But there are some significant differences. One is it's uh, it's open source, and it's federated. So this is the kind of the key thing to understand is there are there are different Mastodon servers, unlike Twitter, where there's one, well, I mean, you know, there's redundancy, but there's one server, it's the Twitter server. Mastodon is, there are many, many servers, and basically anybody can create a server. You uh, you join in through that server, but you can see the, they call them toots not tweets, they're toots on Macedon. You can see them from the other servers. So the, the server I joined is, is I think, w- w- was it you, Rob, that mentioned the uh, mytransponder.com server because that's a group of people that are aviation-oriented. And so you can, you can limit what you see to just your server if you really want to restrict it, you know, or you can open it up. But I, I've been using the Macedon app. I'm still trying to figure it out. Some people like the the app that's called Toot, 
which is T-O-O-T exclamation point. Look for that um, in the App Store. Although that one's not free. That one's $4. But a lot of people, well, some of the people are saying that that one is is, is much better. Yeah, I, I've been a little, uh, I, I don't know what I expected, but uh, I've been a little uh, disappointed at Mastodon because it's, I don't think it's that easy to operate. Uh, I really don't. And, uh, but that's just me. And I'm probably spoiled uh, by by years of, of using Twitter. Like anything new, it would take a little bit of time to get used to. It's also relatively young and uh, in terms of its development. And so I think that will improve over time. The people that like the Toot app seem to say that it uh, is uh, uh, a much better user experience than the Macedon app. So uh, I will probably change that but uh on on mass uh, on macedon i'm max flight guess what max flight at squawk.mytransponder.com if you have an app you can you know you can find me and and, and follow me there so uh and again the the my transponder uh, server is is for designed for aviation oriented people i don't know if there's a mechanism to keep it focused that way i don't know how that all works but another aspect of all this is uh, because it's federated because it's open source there's no tracking there's no ads there's no uh, you know mining of your data to uh, you know to uh, sell you things or any of that kind of stuff that you find on the commercial sites like facebook like twitter like you know all, almost all the others so uh, worth you know worth checking out if uh, if you want to uh, follow me you can and uh, yeah we'll see where it goes we have a couple of emails we'll finish up with we we heard from Rich uh, again Rich says that he listened to episode seven hundred twenty five another great job thank you Rich a few comments for you first of all congratulations to David on your engagement best wishes to you and Amber and then. Um, Second, oh yeah, this is, uh, here we go. Uh, He says, second, regarding alternatives to Twitter. I forgot that that's what he was talking about. One of the most promising is Post. This is different than Mastodon, different than Twitter. Maybe not quite as well known at this point, but it's called Post, P-O-S-T. He says it started from the ground level up and is not yet at the Twitter level of quality and experience, but is very interesting to watch as they build it. Uh, he said he was user number 10,000 or so, and now I think they are over thirty uh, 300,000. Uh, this is uh, still low compared to Twitter, but you can see where they are going, and I think it is already a better experience than Mastodon and much easier to use. And then there's an article uh, about it uh, out of businessstandard.com, and it talks about post.news. It's a micro-blogging platform. It was set up by the former CEO of Waze, you know, the navigation software, and an ex-Google employee. And their tagline is a social platform for real people, real news, and civil conversations. It also allows you to tip creators via some kind of an integrated system for micropayments. There's some other features that are interesting. And uh, you can get an account. You go to post.news. So they're limiting uh, people. They're they're limiting uh new account creation. So they're trying to grow it slowly so they don't get inundated probably. And um, he says uh, that it might take a week or so to get online. Well, so I went in to, uh, to register because I wanted to get Max Flight. 
on the post.news. So I did that, and I'm on the waiting list to get in. And I'm currently in position 204,216. So I don't expect that to happen quickly. I'm in the 203,000s. <laughs> Are you? You're ahead of me. Yeah. Good. So we'll put a link in the show notes to where you can sign up for post.news, get on the waiting list if that's something that interests you. And then Rich finishes, he says, finally, regarding the terrible air show crash in Texas, AOPA Safety put out a video by Richard McSpadden, the former commander of the Thunderbirds, and he's the AOPA Safety Senior Vice President now, who did a very good job explaining how air shows work and the potential causes of the incident. And this is the link that we have. It's the same video that we uh, included in the show notes for episode 725. So if you didn't catch, catch that connection, it is a really good video. And even though it's not the very latest, I'm not sure there's too much news in the past week anyway. Uh, but you can, again, find that link in the show notes for episode 725. So if you want to go straight there, it's, you know how to do this, airplanegeeks.com slash 725. And that is in the show notes there. Uh, then we uh, heard from Tom. Tom sent us a notice, uh, Women in Aerospace Grand Premier. This is at the museum, uh, the Western Museum of Flight. And I think, uh, Max, is that in Torrance, California? Is that where that is? Are you familiar with this museum? No, I'm not familiar with it. Okay. Yeah, I think it's in Torrance. But the Grand Premier is December 3rd and 4th, 2022, uh, free admission. And it's a new walk-in exhibit where uh, it says young girls from any background can identify and explore the many career choices available to them in the world of aerospace. The exhibit will enable them to explore the subject at their own pace, concentrate on those specific fields within aerospace that are of greatest interest to them. And it mentioned the initial funding for this project came from donations in the memory of a museum docent, Mary Falstrom. She died in a tragic mid-air collision in 2016. Um, this walk-in exhibits a tribute to Mary and they say to the myriad of other women who forged non-traditional paths and who persevered as pioneers. Um, principal aim of this exhibit is to awaken this same pioneer spirit in all of our young citizens who come to experience it. So again, that's the Western Museum of Flight. Their website, if you want more information, is WMOF, Western Museum of Flight, WMOF.com. So you can uh, check that out. And if you can make the grand premiere, terrific. Uh, it's coming up really fast, though, as we record this, December 3rd and 4th. But uh, if you can't make that, then uh, maybe you have some children or know some children that might uh, benefit from uh, spending some time in this exhibit. So check them out. Thanks, Tom, for that. All right, that's it for this episode. Let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. You can find us at airplanegeeks.com. Show notes for this episode. The shortcut link is airplanegeeks.com slash two. Nope. Airplanegeeks.com. I did this last week too. Airplanegeeks.com slash 726. Our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. I'm slowly getting caught up. And uh, Rob Mark, any uh, any closing thoughts, comments, suggestions, ideas for improvement? Well, actually, I, I was thinking that long as you're asking about improvement, uh, I think you need a haircut. Um, I do. You know, I I really uh, – oh, I forgot that people can't see you. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I 
I, no other comments. I've blabbed too much tonight as it is. All right. How about you, David? No. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Oh, good. All right, Max Trescott, are you going to break the uh, streak of uh, nothing to say here? Actually, I was going to say I hope everybody here in the U.S. enjoyed their uh, Thanksgiving holiday. I was yes. uh, very happy to get a couple of days off from flying and hang out with family and friends, and I hope everybody else had that uh, same opportunity as well. And as usual, uh, if anybody wants to shoot me a note, uh, just go out to aviationnewstalk.com, click on contact at the page, uh, top of the page. And of course, uh, check out the Aviation News Talk podcast if you've got any interest at all in general aviation. Terrific. And I'm Max Flight. You can find me at 30,000feet.com, which makes me realize I should put my Mastodon name in there. Have to do that. But otherwise, please join us next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. Night, everybody. Thanks for listening. I'm I was going to say I'm not Max Flight, but then I suppose everybody knows that already. No, hey, listen, I hope everybody had a good holiday. It's nice to be back. And uh, uh, what night is it tonight again? It's Monday as we record this. So we won't be able to tell them what's going to happen uh, on Wednesday. Never mind. This is going nowhere. (laughs) I was going to say something funny, and I just realized I boxed myself into a corner. You did. So cut that part out, Max. Okay, Okay, for sure.